Okay, and welcome to the show. This upload is coming to you March 1st, 2017, and you're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast. In today's episode, we'll be talking about extreme frugality. This episode will definitely be not for the faint of heart. This episode is hosted by myself, Dallas Post, the founder of the Post Money Plan, as well as Jason Colwick. It's important for all the listeners out there to take this episode with a grain of salt because some of these techniques and tricks might be on the extreme side to some. So regardless of what is discussed, not necessarily everything is advocated. These are simple tricks and tips that we have found to be useful in some sense, perhaps not useful in others. So it's important to keep a filter when you're listening to this information. Nonetheless, I think the first thing that we have to do when talking about frugality is to define waste and define what that means to you, define what frugality means to you. So I'll ask you that, Dallas. What does frugality mean to you? In my mind, the way I think of frugality is really focusing on the difference between needs and wants. And I've talked about this before, but really in differentiating what you need versus what you want, you start to realize that your needs are actually very few and your wants are very many. And if you really whittle down to only your needs, it amounts to a whole lot less than what you thought it was. And so once you start to cut out the frills in your life or things that you thought you needed, but you really don't, that's when you start to really channel the idea of frugality. So to me, when I was in high school, I heard of a thing called Ben Franklin's 13 Virtues. It's basically a personal memoir he wrote when he was in his early 20s. You can find it online. There were 13 of them. But one of the main virtues that he espoused was frugality. And I believe he said something to the effect of spend not what may benefit others or yourself. So that was quite profound to me because what that means is all of your money and all of your resources and all of your time need to go to areas that are either beneficial to yourself or others. In other words, spending your money trivially on items that may not bring a benefit might not be very valuable. So what frugality means to me is minimizing waste. That's the bottom line. It's as simple as that. So what waste is to me is something that takes energy to produce, but produces no value. So for instance, if you eat a popsicle and you throw away the other half of it, that other half of popsicle had calories in it. It had food, but took energy for the guy to package it and to freeze it and to ship it. And you're throwing it away. So that constitutes dollars that you can say that was wasteful. Or if you buy a certain car that was perhaps in excess of your means at the time and you didn't really necessarily need the car, or perhaps you buy two cars but you're the only driver, that might be wasteful. So that's basically what waste is to me. Yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. So as we mentioned, it's important to sort of take this with a grain of salt as we delve in later on. But nonetheless, we shall be discussing the big three and then maybe a few more areas of life that most of us spend most of our money, which are housing, food, and transportation, and little ideas that we've learned along the way to optimize and minimize waste in this arena. There was one thought there that we forgot to mention is differentiating between the value and cost of things. Okay, that's a good point. So it's important to understand the difference between cost and value or price and value. So frugality or extreme frugality means you minimize the cost no matter what. And that's not necessarily economically optimum because perhaps the value of something might justify its cost or high cost in some sense. Yeah. And I think it can be difficult for people in American society to differentiate between value and cost because you see a certain price on goods all the time, but then you see sales that say 25% off, 50% off. 
and through marketing are led to believe that that seems like a great price. But when you benchmark it against the true value of an item, maybe either what it's worth to you, how much value it provides in your life, or how much it actually costs to produce, then maybe it's not such good value. And maybe the price, the cost seemed good, but really the value was not good. So let's talk about housing, because that's one of the areas that people have one of their highest expenses. They could spend anywhere from hundreds to thousands of dollars on rents or mortgages. So it makes sense to optimize this arena so that you're not leaving any money on the table. So you essentially have three options regarding housing. You can buy, you can rent, or you can squat slash live with your parents. (laughs) Or you can live with someone who owns the house, maybe a parent. So in the first two instances, it makes sense to minimize the cost of the rents or the cost of the mortgage. So let's talk about rents. How do you do that? The first thing to realize is that you can always negotiate rents and rental terms with your landlord. So for instance, when I was living in Seattle, I was looking for an apartment and I only needed to live in a place for about six months and I could only find year-long leases. So what I did was I actually approached the landlord and negotiated a six-month lease which maybe some people didn't even know that that was an option. You simply just ask for it. And I actually got the exact same rent, but on a six-month term, which was fantastic for me. So the lesson there is don't take everything at face value. You can always negotiate, especially the terms of the lease. Yeah, and with respect to housing and talking about extreme frugality, the thing that comes to mind for me is going back to the needs versus wants things. What you actually need to survive is very little in terms of space, in terms of quality. Well, consider this. Consider that in college, where do most of us live? We live in really, really tiny dorm rooms in a little double bed in a barracks type situation and share it with several other people. If you are so inclined after graduation, you can continue living that lifestyle, A, because you're used to it, and B, because you're minimizing your space requirements. So if you look for housing after college and you're trying to minimize cost, it might make sense to opt for a slightly cheaper barracks communal type situation than living in a luxury apartment, for example. And if you think back to it, a lot of people think back to their college dorm experience, even though you might say that the standard of living where you were sharing a room with somebody and maybe even sharing a bathroom with hallmates, but your experience was good probably because you had that community So what you might perceive as lower living standards, you might be able to use to your advantage to still have a desirable lifestyle. So let's cut to the chase here. Obviously, the cheapest way to minimize cost when you're living in an apartment or you're renting, or even if you're owning, is to take advantage of the economies of scale of having roommates. That essentially means rack them and stack them and pack as many people as you can (laughs) into a house, perhaps. I've lived in situations where it was a studio apartment and my cousin and I were sharing the studio apartment and we just lived in bunk beds and it was fine. I've lived in houses with three bedrooms. We live four people to that house. You obviously have to abide by the terms of the lease, but a lot of times people don't understand that that's an option is to economize on the scale of having roommates and cutting that rent proportionally. I think a lot of people can think back to their college days where you were living with three, four, five people. And if you think, oh man, back then I was only paying $250 in rent. Okay, maybe your living standards were lower, but you had a good time because you had the social aspect of being around with more people. And there are definitely benefits of having your own place or if you're a couple to having your own place, but you're not sacrificing everything by sharing with roommates 
I've found that to be the case in my own situation is that my happiness is either unaffected or in fact improved if I'm living with somebody else because you have somebody to live with. If you choke on some food, you got someone who can give you the Heimlich maneuver. It's not, it's not as lonely. <laughs> I, I took on roommates because I was afraid of not Heimlicking myself. <laughs> I just, I couldn't bear that cost. Mm. Okay, so talking about owning now would be sort of a topic in and of itself, is how to minimize cost when you own. Perhaps that's a, a topic best left to a real estate podcast at a later date. But essentially, the core principles remain the same. What you want to do is you want to minimize cost by either increasing the number of roommates that you have or buying something below your means. So for instance, if you're first starting out and buying a starter house, maybe you don't overextend yourself. Perhaps you grew up in an affluent neighborhood or something and you feel entitled to a high standard of living. If you can switch your mentality and say, well, you know what? Maybe this first starter house that I'm going to own isn't going to be glamorous. It's not going to have a lot of space, but that's okay because it's a starter house and you will be rewarded financially by not overextending yourself. Yeah, I totally agree with that. If you grow up and you're used to a certain standard of living because of your parents and living with your parents, you have to realize that your parents took decades to accumulate that wealth and the ability to have that lifestyle. And it's a bit unrealistic to expect that you can come out of college and have that same lifestyle. That's correct. So now while we're on the topic of housing, let's talk about utilities because that's a significant percentage of housing costs as well. It's electricity, it's maybe natural gas, it's water, it's internet, and all these you know trash services, all these miscellaneous utilities that you might spend when you're living in a house. So the absolute minimum possible would be zero, right? If you lived in a house with no electricity, no water, no internet, you would have zero utility bills. Now that's not very realistic. You might be paying for candles though. Might be paying for candles. <laughs> But that's not very realistic because obviously we need water, we need electricity. Maybe we don't need electricity, but <laughs> most people probably need a refrigerator at the very least. So the question then becomes, how do we minimize such costs? Well, most of our electricity costs come from heating and cooling and the refrigerator and stuff that we plug into the walls and lights. So how do you minimize this? Well, the extreme frugalist might turn everything off, never turn on his AC once, and simply have his refrigerator keep his food cool, and that would be it. And that would result in a drastically low electricity bill, which sometimes I have found myself doing is simply I won't turn on the AC for maybe six months at a time. And yes, it gets a little hot, but you know what? It's not a big deal because, you know, I go to work and I have AC or I step outside and there's a breeze. So another way to minimize utility costs for heating bills is to take cold showers. So if you take cold showers... And I you hate this one. <laughs> I hate this one, but I've actually heard of maybe psychological benefits to taking cold showers. I don't know how true that is or not, but it's certainly true that cold showers are cheaper than hot showers because you don't have to you know, use electricity or gas to heat up the water. And even on top of that, if you have a gym or if you have a shower at your maybe your work office or something, you could actually just shower there and then never turn on your shower at home, and that would drastically decrease your water and electricity costs. And now this tip might seem a little more extreme, but think of showering daily as perhaps a luxury. And we take that for granted that you have to shower every day. But is that really true? Do you really have to shower every single day? Do you become so dirty that it becomes necessary to shower every day? 
I postulate that it's only necessary to shower after a workout or after you become dirty or working outside or something. But if you simply go to work, come home, and just are wearing the same clothes and didn't really break a sweat all day, maybe just skip taking a shower and then you save on electricity and water. Yeah, that is an option. In America, we definitely have been given that affluence where we feel that we can take a shower every day. But even in cultures like in France, it's not as normal to do such things, let alone places like India or or elsewhere. So what a lot of people don't realize is that most toiletries in life are essentially free. So you can walk into any hotel in America and ask for a spare toothpaste tube or a spare toothbrush or some floss, and they'll most likely give it to you. So every time you stay at hotels or you're out of town at a convention or something, I've found it useful to stock up on the shampoos and the toothpaste. Another trick that you can do is that when you run out of toothpaste, you can actually cut the end off and get about two more weeks worth supply of toothpaste out of the bin instead of throwing it away, which may be slightly trivial and only cost a couple of cents here and there, but we are talking about extreme frugality here. When it comes to using shampoo, using shampoo every day can actually be, some would say, is damaging to your hair, but only shampooing every several days can actually be good for your hair and then also save on your shampoo consumption. That's a good point, and that brings us back to the not showering every day, which on the surface sounds crazy and sounds gross and disgusting because we've been programmed in the society to have an aversion to filth and all these kind of things. But if you can minimize the amount of times you shower, That's not only beneficial to your wallet, but beneficial to the environment as well, because you're not wasting electricity or water having to pump it and clean it and recycle it back to your own system. So another area in the personal hygiene realm of saving money would be to cut your own hair. Think about how much energy and money it costs to cut your hair. A, you have to get in your car, drive across town, go to the barber, sit in a chair, tell him what you want. He pulls out some scissors, he cuts your hair. You have to pay him, you have to tip him, you have to drive back home, and then all is said and done, it's four hours later and however much money you spent cutting your own hair. The alternative is to go to Walmart and buy a pair of clippers and just shave your head or cut them with scissors and maybe do that once a month, and then that's extremely cheap. Yeah, that one works pretty well for guys, especially with short hair, maybe not as much for the women. That's true. One more small tip back to the uh, hygiene and the home economics portion of it is to air dry your clothes. So if you air dry your clothes, you're A, allowing your clothes to last longer because they don't get beat up by the dryer, and B, you're saving on electricity costs. So another frugal tip is to share internet with your neighbors. So when I was living in a house, I actually approached my neighbor, I knocked on her door and noticed that she had a Wi-Fi system set up when I first moved in knocked on her door and said, hey, would you mind me paying you $20 a month or half your bill or whatever it is, and we share the same internet password? And she said, sure, I happily agree to do that. Who wouldn't want to save 20 bucks a month for absolutely no work at all? So instead of having to have a whole new setup cost and pay $50 a month on my own, I now have internet in my house for $20 a month, which is insanely good, all simply because I asked and I'm sharing. Yeah, that's a really good tip. And that's just one of those ways of thinking outside the box where there are ways that are available. Maybe it's not standard issue or convention, what people normally do. But if you think a little bit, there are ways that you could potentially negotiate things to achieve a better result for multiple parties, because not only are you getting cheaper internet, but then they're also getting some income that they wouldn't otherwise have. 
That's correct. And then along those same lines, as similar to the internet utility, would be a phone utility. So I have a company phone that I use at work, and because they're paying the phone bill, I essentially canceled my personal phone and said, wow, there goes $300, $400, $500 a year that I was paying for my personal phone. All that cost is now eliminated because I'm essentially using my company phone for personal purposes in addition to the company purpose. So in summary, when you're talking about minimizing utilities in housing situations, obviously the complete extreme end of the spectrum would be to minimize consumption of said utilities to zero. Because that's not possible, because we need refrigerators to keep our food cool, it's okay to spend a little bit of money on these utilities, but it's important to understand that you don't have to take everything for face value. A $100 electricity bill every month isn't necessarily a given if you just use the minimum necessary. And I think it goes without saying that cable is almost completely useless if you're trying to live a frugal lifestyle. You just never need to pay for cable a day in your life because we have the internet nowadays. So that is easily an expense that can just be cut away immediately. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. Okay, so moving on into the next facet of life in which we spend a lot of money, which would be food. So obviously food is very important and we have to have food to live. So this kind of invokes my 2000 calorie idea, which essentially says that truly, as Dallas, you mentioned early on, truly the only thing you need in life is 2000 calories a day. That's the theoretical floor. It doesn't go any lower than that. You could not have housing. You could be homeless. You could not have clothing. You could not have a cell phone. You could not have a car. But if you have 2,000 calories a day and you're sleeping outside in the forest and it's not freezing outside, you will survive. That's the absolute bare minimum that you need to survive. So 2,000 calories come from groceries or they come from restaurants. Now, obviously, it's a lot cheaper to shop for groceries than it is at restaurants just in general because it would be impossible for a restaurant owner to buy the groceries from the wholesalers or the farmers and then not sell it for a profit. Yeah, because of the labor costs associated with restaurants, you end up paying a lot more for food at a restaurant than you would if you make your own meals through groceries. Precisely. So it's important to understand the value of restaurants and understand that there's a time and a place to eat out with friends. And that's to socialize, essentially, and to blow off steam, to de-stress. So if you find yourself eating at restaurants more often, perhaps alone or you're going to fast food places a lot, that might not be an optimal situation, or there might be areas for improvement to decrease your food bill to get to that 2,000 calorie a day number for a lot less money. So the number one rule when you're talking about grocery shopping is economies of scale and buying in bulk. So they have these stores nowadays, all those wholesale stores, Sam's Club and Costco and all these type of things, in which if you are willing to buy your food in bulk, you can save quite a bit of money by doing so. I would just add, not only buying in bulk, but then if you cook in bulk where you make a meal on the weekend for the rest of the week, that you could have that for lunch every day at work if you take it with you. And then instead of having to pay $10, $15, trying to find a meal for lunch when you're out at work, you have your prepackaged meal that you brought with you when you made earlier on the weekend. That's precisely what I do at my own personal job is I cook in bulk on a Sunday for the entire week for six or seven straight days. I put it in three very large Tupperware bins. It's just basically a meat and vegetable stew every week. So I get all my nutrients and uh, I take it to work with me. And not only is it cheaper, but it's more convenient because I can eat at my desk and work through lunch. So that has helped me a lot. 
And I think what a lot of people have a misconception of is that to buy healthy foods might be a little expensive, but I've found that not to be the case. Typically, the cheaper foods are the staple foods like vegetables, and you've got your sweet potatoes, and you've got your stock meats, chicken and beef. All these things are quite cheap, and they're quite simple if you buy them in bulk. It doesn't have to be expensive. And then cook in bulk or prepare yourself. So just ballpark numbers that I've found in my own experience cooking through food is that on the lower end of the spectrum, I can spend about $80 a week, which translates to $350 to $400 a month in grocery bills. That's about as low as I can go to achieve my 2,000 calorie a day threshold. And then on the upper end of the spectrum, if I'm eating out or not cooking optimally, I can spend as much as $1,000 a month. And if you think about it, that difference of $600 a month is quite significant. Seven or $8,000 per year difference simply in optimizing your grocery bills. So it makes sense to optimize your grocery shopping and your budgeting for food costs because they have a large impact later on. A specific example I can give is to make smoothies in the morning. And what you do is you add raw eggs to your smoothie because when you eat raw eggs, you're actually getting more protein than if you cook the eggs because they're not, I forget the word, I believe it's denaturing the proteins. So you're actually absorbing more nutrients by eating raw eggs. And if you just mix them in with a smoothie, you can't even tell the difference. It just tastes like water. So that's a way, instead of heating up the pan and having electricity costs and frying an egg, all these things add up. So another thing to consider if we're talking about waste with regards to food is to minimize waste. That would essentially mean that you need to eat all of the food that's on your plate, or if you're not going to eat it all, you need to store it in Tupperware. So how many people have you seen when you go to restaurants, leave half their food on the plate and throw it away? Think of where that energy came from to make that food. The energy came from the sun and then landed on our grass, which was then eaten by a cow, which was taken to the slaughterhouse and processed and then driven across the country, frozen in a package, prepared, heated up on the stove by the chef, and then brought out to you by a server. All of this energy you're essentially disrespecting by throwing it in the garbage. That is complete and utter waste, in my opinion. Yeah, I would just echo that point on conserving leftovers. So if you're going to spend money out at a restaurant and it costs you $25 for the meal, but they give you such a big portion that you're either going to eat like a cow and be overly stuffed or throw food away and waste it, you could eat half the portion of your meal and then save half for another meal later and you ended up with two meals and no waste. Okay, so moving on to transportation, which is another significant cost for a lot of people. Essentially, everybody in America has to commute most of the time to their job. You have to drive around town to go to the grocery store. That costs money. So you have a few options. You can either walk, you can ride a bike, you can ride the bus, you can take an Uber or a taxi, or you can drive a car. Now, obviously, to minimize waste, what would the cheapest option be? It might be to ride a bike around, because if you're doing that, you're not burning gas. You're essentially burning the calories of the food that you eat, which are not costless. However, Typically, if you live close enough in a big city and you don't require a car, maybe people in Chicago or New York, you could just get around just fine by riding a bike. And you get exercise at the same time. Of course. Now, obviously, that's not realistic for certain people in a larger city. So maybe you could do that locally around your neighborhood to go to the corner store. But if you need to commute across town, the more realistic options would be to ride the bus or to take a car. Now, how do you decide between the two or optimize your transportation costs in this respect? 
So it's important for me to understand the concept of price per mile driven. So essentially, how much does it cost me to go from point A to point B? So it's a very interesting baseline that the IRS has decided to come up with, which is the reimbursement price per mile, which they have set is approximately 56 cents per mile in 2016. Maybe it's 55 cents. So what that does is that gives you a baseline to consider your transportation costs when you're considering one method of transportation or the other. However, you have to also take into account the value of the time. So if you get on a bus and you pay $3 in bus fares and you only travel five miles, that would be the equivalent of paying 60 cents for every mile that you are transported in addition to the extra time you had to spend to go stand in line for the bus and wait there and then commute and then walk to wherever it is you're going after that. So essentially, that might not be the optimal situation for a lot of people if you start to take into account the value of your time. So the next option is obviously to purchase a car, and the philosophy needs to be similar when you're purchasing cars. So because we have a baseline number for price per mile driven, what you do is you add up all of the costs associated with owning and operating a vehicle, and then you divide them by the total number of miles driven. So for instance, the costs associated with driving a car, gasoline, insurance, maintenance, interest payments on a loan, and depreciation. So those are the big five. So you add all those up, and then you divide by the total number of miles that you've driven in that time period. If that number is over 56 cents a mile, you're sort of behind the game. In other words, that's maybe a luxury vehicle or a sports car or something. And then if you're on the lower end of the spectrum, you're actually doing very well. Probably the most confusing term of all these would be depreciation. Well, how on earth do you know what the depreciation of your car is? Well, the Consumer Reports and the Kelly Blue Books and all these websites actually publish these depreciation graphs, which essentially marks depreciation value as a function of how many miles you're driving in your vehicle. So you can actually look at these graphs and determine based on when you bought the car what your depreciation will be for how many miles you plan to drive it. Yeah, there's two ways to look at it. Either the value your car loses over time or the value your car loses based on how many miles you drive. And either way, you equate it to a certain amount of time costing you a certain amount of money for your car or a certain amount of miles driven costs you a certain amount. Of Precisely. Essentially, there's two modes of car ownership. There's reaping mode and there's sowing mode. So if you're in reaping mode, maybe you're wanting a sports car or a luxury car or something like that. You want comfort, you want style, you want speed. But if you're in sewing mode, you don't really care what your vehicle is and you just want to go from point A to point B as cheaply and safely as possible. So you need to add up all those cost numbers and do the math and consider a vehicle in that range. Now, I've done a little bit of research into this number, and it actually turns out for me, what I found through research is that one of the cheaper option of cars to buy is obviously not a new car because the depreciation loss is way too great. But on the flip side of that, if you buy a car that's too old, then the maintenance starts to go up over time. So the optimal turns out to end up being buying a car that's four years old or so with 40, 50,000 miles on it, and then driving it until it's at about 100,000 or 150,000 and then selling it five years later. And then that's buying a sedan, perhaps a Japanese sedan because they're notoriously cheap and easy to maintain and get pretty good gas mileage. So that turns out to sort of be the optimal sweet spot in terms of lowering your price per mile for your cars driven. Now we've talked about car ownership. One little last trick on the transportation is hypermiling when you're driving. 
So what a lot of people don't realize is that they can significantly decrease their gasoline expenses by what's called hypermiling, which is essentially driving efficiently. Because if you rev up your engine and you're hitting the brakes all the time and you're doing all this, your cost of gasoline per mile can actually skyrocket significantly from a more conservative or consistent driver. So you can do a little bit of research by Googling hypermiling, but essentially what it means is driving very conservatively, never revving up the engine. But what you want to do is you want to stay far enough behind other cars that if someone swerves into your lane or something, you can just let off the gas rather than hitting on the brakes because it goes back to the energy wastage. Every time you hit the brakes, you're wasting gasoline, you're wasting movement. And then the second biggest tip to the hypermiling is to time your lights. So what you do is you look down the road, maybe a couple miles down, and you see the red lights, and you perhaps have a routine where if it's on your normal commute to work, you can actually time when it's going to turn green and adjust your speed accordingly so you don't have to sit there and idle. Yeah. One thing we didn't mention was just when you're buying a car, picking a car that has very efficient gas mileage can end up saving you approximately $1,000 a year on gas just by uh, 10 to 15 miles per gallon better efficiency. So a lot of philosophies here have been towards minimizing consumerism because increased frugality is mainly about minimizing consumption rather than recycling or reducing. One kind of summary point that I would emphasize would be being willing to buy used instead of new. There's so many things that you can purchase used which are still completely satisfactory in terms of quality and your consumption, but you get at such a better price that it saves you a ton of money. If you think about buying a used car instead of a new car, you save a ton of money. Well, that's true in almost any retail situation is that buying used, you're essentially getting 80% of the value for 20% of the cost, maybe, which is quite significant over the long term if you add that up in terms of all of your daily incidentals that you need to spend money on. So Craigslist is a fantastic website and garage sales and all of these are great things because you're essentially buying things used. You're taking all of the depreciation hits off of you. And it's getting rid of societal waste where a good has been produced and someone's found the utility that they wanted out of it, but then you're going ahead and finding more utility from that same thing before it's thrown away. Precisely. So I think we would summarize by saying that it's beneficial in almost every instance to buy used things rather than paying retail price. Yeah. So in summary, I think we would both agree that to minimize costs and improve frugality and minimize waste, Step one would be to minimize your wants and minimize your consumption and this compulsive need to have the latest and the greatest. So at face value, remember, we go back to my 2000 calorie theory. The truly only thing you need in life is food and sleep. That's it. You don't need anything else. So if you can minimize, everything else is superfluous, essentially. So if you can take care of these core things, which is your food budget and your housing budget, then everything else you can minimize or essentially cancel out almost to zero. Yeah, the more you're willing to get rid of wants, the more frugal and the more extreme you can become. There's a limit to how far you probably should go in terms of practicality, but we're just talking in terms of going to the very extreme. And one thing that you'll find that happens once you practice a frugal lifestyle over a long period of time is that you separate the happiness from the actual act of acting frugally, and it actually becomes more like a game to try to save money, and it actually does not hinder or impact your happiness at all. 
not only is it like a game, but then you start to learn that you can derive happiness not from your possessions, but from your circumstances and what you do in life and what you believe and value and less about what you own. Yeah, so that pretty much sums things up. I think it gets to the essence of what we're talking about. So in summary, frugality can end up helping you to realize that you can find satisfaction and joy and happiness out of life independent of your possessions and how much you're consuming. And so I'll just leave it at that. So that pretty much wraps things up. And you can catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan podcast. 